Sometimes my angry thoughts rest, and then I dream, remembering the legendary leprechaun seen by drunken liars by some mountain stream. Oh, what a host of pagan fetishes still live by Cairn and Mountain Lake, by holy wells like Glashikura, and serving drinks at a poor man's wake. For our ancient gods were always with us, although baptized with Christian names, and the warm hearts that glow within us are lit by pagan flames. To the Christian man whose blood runs thin, I've this to say: our ancient ways were a healthy sin, and the dogmas of the men of Rome only confused our Celtic home. Sean Healy was born in Carsaivine, County Kerry, 55 years ago. After leaving school, he got a job at the county council cutting turf and subsequently he worked at various jobs on the railway. At the age of 24, he emigrated to England. He went to the northeast of England to the Geordie district of Tyneside. For 26 years, he lived in this area in the counties of Northumberland and Durham, working in factories, driving trucks, doing general manual work. During that time, he wrote poems about the people, the places, about the thoughts, the fears, the hopes of Durham miners, navvies and factory workers. The best of them are short, simple folk poems, the imagery bare and spare. Five years ago, Sean Healy and his wife sold their house in County Durham and went to live in Cardaniel, County Kerry. He got a job as a farm labourer on a local farm. Excuse me, Joan. Um, I want to tell you about the cattle this morning. They broke out through the back of the house. Oh, did they? They did. And uh, anyway, I had to get the old motorbike and run away down the pretty road and look for them. Huh. Um, what's his name? Uh, Mike, Mike Sheehan, not Mike Sheehan. Johnny Sheehan told me they were, they were gone up towards the village. Uh-huh. And that's, what, that's where they went this morning. Anyway, I rounded them up and brought them back, but I put them into the, to the bottom place. Now, tell Matt that they, they can't stay in the back of the house. Because they've, they've eaten all the grasses there, and of course they naturally break out, you see. So tell him about that, and we, because we must, he'll have to fix the fences below, because some other cattle broke in a couple of days ago. You, you know the place in front of the house? Oh, I didn't know about that. The front of the house, they, they did, this is actually. What did and they? The, Matt knows about these, and he drove them out. And uh, where he's stuck, no, we'll have to, they'll have to mend the fences. But the, the important thing is that it's, it's uh, Matt's cattle that have broken out of the, the field at the back of the house. Oh, I see. So the point is, we have to get Eugene and Matt down there with the car and the dog and round up the cattle and get them out. Yeah, no, they're not too badly, badly off, but they put them into the lower place, you see. But what's really, what's really wrong, Joan, is that the, the fences are not strong enough on the road. That's true, you know. I think that's enough for the time being, right? Yeah, yeah. We'll have more room for him to get closer to the site. I know we'll have to bring him also, up the last couple the, of minutes. The, the pile of sand there should be down as well, to a certain extent. We'll, we'll be moving it. But I don't think the pile of sand is going to be in the, really in the way till it's through. Well, I, <coughs> I don't think so. I haven't looked at it, you know, so, and to, you know, since they dropped it, but uh, it could be, it could be okay. I need to move the caravan a small bit. Not move it, but. Swing it around a bit. So, well, swing it, and that, that swing the tail round to let them come in. Well, in the in the morning when I come in, if Fusion is not milking the cows, I help out with the milking the cows. Otherwise, I do a few jobs around the the house, seeing that this is a 
a guest, not a guest house, but a, f- a holiday home. And there are big gardens here to look after, hedges, etc., the usual. Now, in the, uh, after doing a bit of work around here, I, ju- I help Matt, he's a farm foreman, or the manager, and uh, we go around. Often we have to dig uh, huge drains here because this land needs uh, reclaiming. And uh, most of the jobs we do often is, in the winter time, is filling in these drains which, of course, means gathering stones, and uh, we use a small tractor for bringing them around, and I generally drive the tractor. Well, then, uh, the jobs are varied otherwise because the, the sheep involves uh, a lot of um, uh, caring. If, if Eugen, doesn't, Eugen is very good on the, on the sheep side because he's, he's born and raised in this, this area and knows the mountainside, you see. Of course, we're involved with the sheep. The sheep... Uh, um, can cause a lot of trouble. You have to look after fences for the sheep. And then when at the lambing time, you have to look after them. There's the foxes in the area. You have to make certain that the sheep are close to the house. Then, in the, as I say, the winter time, we have a lot of work. We have to put slag out on the land, and it's, it's very high country. And you have to take it right up as far as the hill ditch. And you have slag acres and acres of the area. Uh, of course, there's, uh, there's a lot of farm routine goes on that spoils, that spoils your work during the day. If you're involved in, I say, in slagging, you might have to come down, sheep might break out, cattle might break out. Then the, the area is, um, I say, the farm. There are two or three farms involved in this. And consequently, uh, one of them is about two miles away. Somebody would come along and say that there's cattle out down in rock. And you have to leave everything, go down, try and round up the cattle, or somebody's cattle is broken into the area and mend the fences. Let me think of trees. Trees that ease the taut nerves and the heartache. Lissom birches with wind-blown hair cascading down the necks of slender branches. Or saplings spread like charcoal veins against the moon sky. And I know where by lonely lakes lovelorn trees hang down their hair, trailing their fingers to the water's lips with a tender air. Twilight trees, sentineled against the last faint delicate light of day, as into night fade gently, gently away. How are things up at the top, Sean? Did you? Did the milk well, the uh, that that cow you're expecting coming in. Mm. Well, it didn't look as well putting any any sheep on this morning. So I drove them up to the top and lifted, lift them around, let them feed around the top. Peculiar. She should be in a long time ago. Still, we're having trouble. That's nature. We're having a lot of trouble. Um, I think what we'll do this morning, the weather's fine. We'll tackle the garden. And that's the main thing: is the vegetables. Get this lot up. We'll do a bit of weeding over there. Peas? Uh, peas to start with, yes, yes, let's let's have them weeded out. If this dry weather continues, we're going to have a bit of bother with it. Still, that's the way things go. What about the turnips? You, uh, you haven't finished the turnips yet? Turnips we'll leave because it's a bit too dry to put them in. We'll let the, if we get another couple of showers of rain, we'll, we'll see how it works out. I think the main thing is if we can clean up what we've got in already. 
Yes. And weed, because this, this weather now, the weeds grow so fast, the next thing you'll be inundated with them and we'll, we'll be overrun with them. So by the time you've done that, and if you can trim up, then if you've got any time to spare, we'll do the hedges, get the hedges trimmed. And finish off the flower beds. And finish off the flower beds, yes. Now, Sean works on the farm here, and you are the manager of the farm. Yes. What exactly does he do here, and what's involved in this farm? Well, A, it's, it's purely a mountain farm. It's a hill farm. It's not what you'd call a... In County Meath land. So we specialise mostly in sheep, suckling herd, and I, I also milk three or four cows, which I buy in calves and feed. Uh, this is the main thing, and of course the rest is, is produce from our own gardens. We kind of keep our own gardens, and we kill out our own lambs for the house. Um, my wife here, we look after the guests, and we've got five deep freezers, which... In Kerry, you can't keep running 20 miles into the shops, so naturally the kitchen garden is a big asset here to us. The rest is... um, When I first came here, there was nothing. It was purely just open land, mountain land, uh, no drains, no nothing. So we have drained a lot of it. We've got about altogether 100 acres. I'd rather see the green fields blackened and mountains of ash arise. As long as our people had employment, I would not bother about unlovely skies. This place in front of us here is Daniel O'Connell's old home. Nowadays, the border works looks after the the house and runs it. Uh, has it have it open? They have it open to the public. In the olden days around here, you had you had uh, lots more people living here under the landlordship of the O'Connells. In Derrynan Beg, just to the back of us here, a small area of land on the mountainside, you had 62 families living there. Now, presently, we've only got about four families in the same area. The Gumbean soul and the Gumbean brain lives and breeds on greed and gain. The economist whose analytic range is restricted to figures on the stock exchange and applies his machinations and tests of greed to the human essential of planting seed should be banished from the decent race of men back to the obscenity of his boardroom den. County Durham is one of the oldest coal-producing regions in England. The coal fields have a lore and a tradition that are unique. Hard times and adversity have given the miners a sense of solidarity and developed a fatalistic and witty approach to daily living. Many of the pits are wet and a typical remark among the colliers is it's so wet where I'm working that we're using alligators for pit ponies. The narrowness of the pits have evoked comments like the roof is so low that even the rats are born bow-legged. Life amongst the miners made a permanent impression on Healy the poet and Healy the man. With those people, I, I found a great rapport altogether, and I count of the fact is that they were, uh, they, they, I, very like, the Kerry people. I mean, the, you could there was there was a great, uh, I want to say, uh, similarity between miners and fishermen. You know, the the, the fishermen of the, that I knew when I was young, my uncle was was you know, they were just local fishermen. They went out in seine boats and caught mackerel and so on like that. And uh, that, that atmosphere, I, I found, uh, I, and the 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 rapport they had be. I just remember coming down from a little old pit village 
uh, in a pub up there with this friend of mine who unfortunately is now dead. And as we walked two miles down the road, he would stand at different places and he'd say, do you see that field there now, that corner? Now, underneath that place, about a 1,000 feet, Geordie Watson or someone like that, he was killed stone dead there by a fall of stone. Uh, farther on here, that, that's in a place where there's maybe three or 400 yards, now there was an old pit there called Cupid, now that's closed down, and um, he would tell of men still living around the area, whom I knew actually, the same as I see the, we in Kerry, you know, we know everybody else around our neighbours, and I knew all the people around there, uh, because it's been so long around that area. And he would say, Geordie so-and-so, um, he lost his leg, just at the other end of that field, of course, a thousand feet down, and he would say, you can never be a poet, and you can never be an artist, if you do not remember the fact is that somebody has to go down into the bowels of the earth and dig your coal up. Do you know what the fetid sweat smells like, clotted and stinking under the belt? Has the salt of it ever stung your eyes, where pit crops are the only trees you see, and the ceiling of a two-foot seam of coal the limits of your only dust-choked skies? Would you work on your knees for hours at a stretch, where there's neither sun nor breeze under the earth, and silicosis haunts the miner's breath? Accursed be the fool, the hypocrite fool, who sneers when the miners strike. Remember the fire when you warm your ass, and the food you eat that's cooked on gas. Some fellow human is forced by the fate of an inhuman system to fill your grate, while fools stand up and prate and prate how great our civilization is. Would you regard yourself as a walker poet or a walking man's poet? Well, I wouldn't consider myself as a working man's poet in this way, as I consider myself as a poet. I, all my life I lived as a working man. I've had to do labouring work. The, the thing is this, is my identification with working people, my rapport with them is, is very strong. In fact, uh, I am very happy in the, in the company of uh, working men. I mean, they can... I think that uh, Sean Healy is cast in a mystic mould now, I don't think he has achieved anything uh, of uh, of um, discernible happiness or achievement in this mystic mould as a man, as a human being, or as a poet, as an artist. I think he falls short of, of perfection, of ideals, of his own vision, which is, by the way, very... Strange and and disturbing in in many in many examples of his poems here. I'm looking at the last one at the moment. Alone, it's called, and just a few lines are, when young, no thoughts had I to call my own, only a fatalism by religion sown that cursed the joyous hours of youth, that hid, blasphemed, distorted truth, that weighed me down, that chilled my heart with priestly frown. You know, he's very um, obsessed as a poet, <coughs> and this poem came across to me as. Well, effective to a degree, but really it came across, I've just noted, written on the margin, an artless cry of anguish. What did I mean by that? I think that it evokes sympathy, certainly, for uh, Sean Healy, for the anguish that he has suffered. But I don't think that it evokes that universal compassion 
that we feel for a great poet that we that is aroused in us by great works of art. I don't think my you know human sympathy for Sean Healy reading these poems is sufficient. I would rather uh, much. My name is Jim Kemi. I was the independent socialist candidate for the Islamic general election, and I am also editor of the Limerick Socialist newspaper. As you can see from the walls around you here in this hall, the poetry of Sean Healy is very prominently displayed on the walls of my election headquarters. And indeed, these poems have evoked great interest amongst journalists and visitors to the hall here. Um, I can say that his poetry indeed has enhanced my election campaign because many of the themes are universal ones, the ones that are relevant to Limerick as they are to South Africa and other countries. His poems are simple poems. They're written with great clarity, simplicity and vigour. They speak about suffering, about life as it is, not the life that we read about in some books and papers. They reflect the life that Sean Healy has led, that he feels very deeply and very passionately. The poems that appeal to me especially are uh, Humanist Prayer, a very excellent poem, uh, Land of the Savage, bitter poem about apartheid in South Africa, and also Pagan Flames, a poem... Land of toil and the slaves bent back, heat that burns all humans black. Land of desert and scorching sun, land of the whiplash and the gun, land of murder, land of rape, tortured from the Transvaal to the Cape, where the poor and barefoot are trampled on, and the black mother weeps for her murdered son. Land of the white man with his Christian creed, Blessing his murders and his greed, his fascist politics of the devil's choice. Every man has got his price. Land of brutes that ramp and ravage, land of apartheid and the white savage. I certainly would say that the first book of poems is very much uh, influenced by socialistic in thought. Well, were you, in fact, involved in the socialist movement in England? Yes, I was involved in the socialist movement. Uh, in every uh, every job I went to, I was uh, I was always in the trade union, and I was always I always promoted uh, trade union principles. Uh, I was on the left always, and consequently, in in most jobs I went into, and I found the trade union uh, leadership at local level was very right-wing or very uh, nonchalant in their uh, their attitude, we'll say, to uh, conditions. You know, the, uh, they, you, you often f- could really say the right-wing when cap and hand to the management. And uh, I, I suppose, maybe being when I was younger, that this... this uh, I, I used to get very annoyed and get myself very upset. Uh, I remember once upon a time an elderly chap, an old communist, saying to me... Uh, 
John, he said, look, you, you shouldn't get yourself so upset listening to the radio. Might be some broadcast and they'd be talking about strikers out in some part of the country. Well, it's in the evening after dark The black leg miner creeps out and he guns to walk With his moleskin trousers and his dirty old sock Guns the dirty black leg miner He'll take his picks and O'Neill gun To shop his marrows by walking below there isn't a wife in Wharton Row will look at a black leg miner. So join the union while you may, Divin wait for your dying day. For that may not be so far away, you dirty black leg miner. Black leg's the lowest of the lowest. It was it. A tremendous surge of feeling against black legs, you oh, know. And the wives used to tin pan them out the street. There was about three down this street and two up the next street and black legged. I would say about 907. I remember because I was I was only a kid. <coughs> and they come down with the tin pans and buffs and uh, they were tin pan outside the door and shoving black legs throwing bits of stones and all sorts up at the windows and, and that was the end of the black legging for that beer. Right, My father reckons that there was never a window in the porters' houses at black leg in the 26th strike. This is an old book, belonged, an old diary belonged to my grandfather. It was, starts from 1767, uh, explosion at Fatfield, 39 lives lost on March 27. Thomas Saint, Beat R. Smith down the Black Fell with four at 46 ounce bowls. 1866, February the 24th, the binding was at Springwell Colliery. December the 12th, 12th, explosion at the Oaks Colliery. Upwards of 400 men and boys were lost. October the 31st, explosion at Pelton Fell Colliery, 24 lost. Accursed be the contented tame who sit around and idly blame the fiery ones who shout, Arise! Only the struggle is the prize, not the ashes but the flame, and idleness is the only shame. What they call the county of Durham, Big Yowa. He was a big man. Could you imagine? He was 18 stone. No fat. 18 stone of man. Uh, he's a big fella. You never saw any little big yours in the corner down. They were big men, big, he's, strong men. He used to eat three chops while he's waiting for his dinner, if the dinner wasn't ready. And he had a gallower and trap, that's a pony and trap, to take him to work. And it was there when he rode out, out the pit to bring him home again. And he used to keep him, he never had a matter because there was nobody could keep up with him. Man and a half. <laughs> but he's a big man. In horror, I turn from the neurotic scene and shout to the first human being. Hey, brother, worker, passing by. Do you know they've polluted our streams? They've shut out our sky? But I know by his stares he knows not, nor cares. And I realise they have plundered his soul. They've blinkered his eyes. I've never in all my days, I've never met such cheerful people as Pittman going to work. That's right. Mm? Yeah. When I go to my daughters at Fatfield and the men are going to work without fail, 
when they meet each other, they, there's a witty remark passed. Yeah. There's not a, not a soul living would believe that they were going down a mine to, to earn their living. About two years ago, he'd gone back to Ireland for a holiday. <coughs> and we was sitting over the club on Saturday night, and we got on cracking about this holiday he'd had in Ireland. And I said, well, wait, what's it like now, Johnny? Then? Well, I said, it's a beautiful place, I should never have left it. Well, I said, Johnny, as far back as the Chinese, aren't they? Nothing of the sort, he says. It's as up-to-date now as it was 30 years ago. <laughs> Cahar Daniel is certainly the reverse side of a Durham pit village. There are no slag heaps, no pits, no industry. Rocky peninsulas, hill farms, sandy coves and the wildness of the Atlantic. Though surrounded by a wild and rugged beauty, Sean Healy has written very little nature poetry. Was returning to Ireland a mistake? Ruth Healy is a Yorkshire woman. From my point of view, yes. Whether it's a good point from Sean's point of view, I don't know. Um, he lived 26 years in a strange place and he came here thinking it was to home. Um, and it's not. We came here in 1972. Now, there's a great influx. I read that there was a great influx of, of uh, people coming back. And I really think that they live in no man's land. All the time they lived in England, they were Irish. They come home to Ireland. They think they're coming home. And they realise that they've matured, you see. They've matured in England. They were probably in their early 20s when they went. They're now probably in their 50s. They're more English, although they won't admit it. They can't admit it to themselves. It's almost as if you've got no nationality. Do you think, to some extent, it was a romantic gesture to leave England and come back to live here? Oh, probably. Probably a very romantic idea um, to come home with very little money. That's why Sean's got to build his own house. Um, at the same time, as working as a farm labourer, full-time, 45 hours a week, only just been reduced from 50 hours in the past few months. 50, 50 hours a week to 45 hours a week. Um, every alternate week he's working, weekend, and trying to build his house at the same time. It hasn't reached the stage, you see, where I can give him a hand. Um, and that's... It, it's... That's one of the reasons he, he can't write. He hasn't got the time. He hasn't got the time to, to go for a walk and think it out. Two-thirds of the world are starving. The bomb hangs above each head. Those who ill-treat animals, the anti-vivisectionist said, are not fit to live. In other words, should be dead. Two-thirds of the world are starving. The bomb hangs above each head. It's time they brought back hanging, the Tory lady said. And hoodlums of the working class should be flogged until they've bled. Simon, you were talking about roots and the fact that you yourself felt that you, you don't have any roots. I don't feel as though, well, not until here and seeing what my father experienced in Filemore and cousins, second cousins, etc. I mean, when I was young, I was in Gristhorpe for five, six years, and then York, and then Chesley Street for another 
five, six years, and then after that, up into Pelton Fell. And at no time during that could I ever experience any one settled home. Therefore, it was very hard to build up any sort of relationship to the area. And then after that, at college in Carlisle and down in London, you generate friends which you, which you like, but they, they are not part of the area, especially a place like London, which is so cosmopolitan. And then you come here and you, you sense the belonging people have because their cousins, their second cousins their brothers, their sisters, have always been around in the large family atmosphere and the farms which hold them together. I think the, the land holds them together. And travelling to Carsevine, where which when I was a child I remember, it's got an atmosphere of, of belonging, um, a belonging which I, I never experienced in England. And even going further out of Carsevine, up, up Filemore towards Kells, you feel as though you're going home to a certain extent. And I've never really experienced that anywhere except here. I feel as though the three months that I have been here, that I have been able to relax because I feel as though the are ties which were never knotted before, which have been wanting to be knotted. I want to live, to see the flowers' opening lips drink in the summer rain, and not the frightened eyes of war-scared orphans crazed with pain, to see the golden moon rise above the distant hill, a lover's moon and not a bomber's out to kill, to hope that man shall follow man as has happened since the race began, and that the line continues endless till the end of time. No God or gods, I ask for help. Let men appeal to men. Give us this day our daily bread, not bombs. Amen. Amen. There is a note of paganism running through your poems. Do you are you interested in the whole pagan background and the idea of paganism to me is this that paganism uh, I would say is a natural religion of the earth, so of man. When I mention paganism, I, I kind of use it as a broad term. I, I use it as a man's rapport with his environment. His, um, it, it's a form of spirituality that that uh, rural life generates in most human beings. You, you, it, you, I suppose paganism is the respect for, for the, for the uh, uh, primeval forces of nature. See the mighty temples erected to your fame, are fortified against the poor, the outcast and the lame. Of course they pay lip service with some arms and shows of charity, while lordly prelates in judicial robes and period hats, in clouds of incense from some sorcerer's den, proclaim your praises while they chant their pagan liturgies and preach your gospel at the poor. Down the hapless generations, bishops, pontiffs, priests and parsons anoint the dogs of war and bless the chase, then consecrate with Christian honours the victor in the bloody race. Come, let me take you to the land where I was born, where pagan fetishes are interwoven with every thorn that pierced your brows, 
where each drop of blood you shed is worshipped with a pagan dread. But all the brotherly words you spoke and the honest discipline of your yoke unheard in a din of myth, lost in a pall of Celtic smoke. You are a poet, you write poetry, but in fact you don't read that much poetry. No, I, I, I don't. I, I don't know why, but I'm not really terribly interested, we say, in contemporary poetry because it, it doesn't get to me. Then I read Shelley, Byron and Keats. They were my favourites in the originally, but then I went on to, to Blake. And uh, really, I can f find no satisfaction in the poets of the 20th century. And that's one of the reasons why I, I'm not keen on, on reading. Sean Healy would almost fit into the category of, we'll say, the transcendentalists. I'm thinking of uh, Wordsworth in certain passages, certainly um, Walt Whitman, uh, Emerson. Uh, his vision is at times uh, transcendental, but his language isn't. Uh, his his language sometimes is 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 a uh, appallingly um, um, uneven. Uh, he has a very a very archaic term terminology at times. Uh, I'm just looking at a poem here called Pylons. Pylons on fold of hill uprising trellis the gardens of the morning, pendant cables. Necklacing the Virgin's dawn's emergence from the holy temple of the night. Now the Virgin, the Virgin's dawn's emergence. <clears throat> well, it's it's almost Homeric, but it really hasn't that great swing and flow of of language to make it uh, come off, to make it succeed. And really, uh, I hope I'm not being terribly unfair, but some of the language, such as I've just quoted there comes across as pseudo-ecstatic posturings rather than a vision which is unquestionably genuine, frightening, searing, uh, deeply and profoundly felt and contemplated and, and, and wrought. I think he is at fault in this respect, that he thinks poetic language is, is of a certain norm and must be... Uh, must be... Um, that this norm must be served. I wish that a primitivist would rely solely on his primitive implements, if you like, and not um, borrow from, uh, you know, the tradition of English literature, only to perhaps, um, you know, he has lissom birches with wind-blown hair cascading down the necks of slender branches. Um... Listen, Birches, isn't it almost too self-consciously poetic, you know? <clears throat> I don't find the poems deeply satisfactory, satisfact satisfactory uh, or satisfying. I find them uh, curious, you know, uneven, and uh, at times there are some startling original lines that really uh, come off very, very well. 
Sean Healy is at his best as a folk poet, describing in a simple language life in an industrial environment, drawing on his own intuitions and experience. He has a love for his fellow man, a respect for human life, and a hatred of injustice, war and violent death. His abiding fear of nuclear war and total destruction spills into the imagery of even his nature poetry. Shot down in flames, the wreckage of the sun, like a hell-furnished moor fire scorches the Earth's periphery, nuclear megaton exploding the horizon with volcanic spumes of flame, while smoky, milling clouds churn up the tortured pyre with intoxicating reds and overspilled molten gold. I alone can hear the rumbling, orchestral thunder of the sustained lightning as the fireball slowly swallowed in the maw of space while the winds concussed and bludgeoned, screaming wild, sweep down the fells, demon phantoms fleeing the sunset's golden hells. (laughs) ¶¶ 